Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the Word tonight, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to come together to study your word, to be, to have our mentality stabilized by the teaching of your word, to be reminded that there are eternal absolutes and that there are standards of thought, standards of behavior for the Christian life. Thank you for the examples that we have in the Old Testament in the flesh and blood lives of these great Old Testament saints. We see both their success successes and their failures, and as we study these things, we come to understand how we can apply your word in our own lives. Challenge us with the things we study this evening, we pray in Christ's name, amen. As we've gone through our study of Joseph, one of the major doctrines that we've been spending some time on has to do with forgiveness and reconciliation. Not just forgiveness in terms of our uh, relationship with God, but forgiveness and reconciliation in terms of our relationship with people. Sometimes that's a lot tougher for us to deal with because when we commit sin and we confess our sins to God, God instantly forgives us, removes the sin as far as the east is from the west. We still have to deal with problems of of divine discipline, but when we're back in fellowship, we have the resources of the Holy Spirit in order to deal with any discipline that comes our way. But when it comes to someone who has abused us, maltreated us, someone who has, out of real hatred or anger toward us, desired to do as much harm toward us as they possibly can, and succeeded in putting us in extremely vulnerable situations, harmful situations, uh, taking away all of our hopes and dreams in some cases, it's at those times that we find it extremely difficult to truly forgive and to be reconciled to those people. We looked at passages in the Gospels last week where Jesus said we don't just forgive somebody seven times, we forgive them 70 times seven. And it doesn't matter if they, uh, if, if they do something against you, sin against you, seven times a day. You, if they come back to you and they uh, seek forgiveness, and then, then just forgive them and move on. And after a while, we're, we're thinking, well, how many times do I keep making myself vulnerable to them? And there's a place of common sense, as some, someone said to me this last week. It's a recognition of reality that if someone continues to stab you in the back, then you ought to wake up and not exactly turn your back to them the next time. You can forgive them, but perhaps there's a basis for not making yourself vulnerable to them and being wise, recognizing the nature of their character and the nature of their actions. And so we see an example of this kind of behavior in Joseph and Joseph's treatment of his brothers. And some 14 or 15 years, it would be longer than that, it would be about 20 years after they sold him as a slave to the Midianites and he was taken to Egypt, then he is... Uh, confronted with them again. And you can imagine that when he was 
spending his time as a slave with Potiphar, initially when he's a slave by the Midianites, who knows what that was like. Then he is a slave in the household of Potiphar. He was treated very well after a while, but when Potiphar's wife framed him for for, uh, attempted rape and he is thrown into prison, then he has to uh, go through all of that uh, situation where he's in prison for uh, beyond two, more than two years. And then he's finally released with the episode with Pharaoh. But until things turned around, you can imagine that he struggled like everybody does with anger and bitterness and resentment, what they had done. Time has gone by, and I think time's an important factor in dealing with something like that in our lives. That's a reality there. But then when the brothers show up, he's not vindictive. He's not resentful at that time. He is forgiving in his actions, but he takes the time to test them to make sure that he can indeed trust them. And there are differences between forgiving somebody and then fully trusting yourself to them again. And so we see the test as he has uh, tested them by giving them the grain, putting the money back in the grain bag, sending them back to Egypt. How are they going to uh, handle the restoration of the money? Uh, for uh, that time period that they're initially away. He's kept their brother Simeon back as as a a hostage, as it were, to guarantee their eventual return with their youngest brother Benjamin. Then when they return with Benjamin, he again tests them to see if they're still jealous and envious of the blessing, the goodness to others that uh, as they were with him when he was the one who was blessed and favored uh, by their father. And we saw the test there, and they se- seemed to be passing well. When we came to chapter 44 last time, and we saw the final test, where he basically sets them up, puts the money back in all the bags, sends them on their way. But in Benjamin's bag, in the bag of the youngest, he put the, <clears throat> the, his special cup, his special silver cup, and then after they left, he sent his servant after them to stop them and accuse them of having stolen it. What's interesting, I didn't touch on this last time. I wanted to back up and just touch on it briefly this, this evening, is his explanation of how he knew what was going on. And this is given in verse 5 of chapter 44, 5. He tells his servant to say. Now, that doesn't mean that he did this. He's just using this to explain how he would know what he knew. In verse 5, he tells, the, tells his servant that when he catches them to say, and, and he discovers the, the theft, he's to say, is not this the one from which uh, this cup, the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You've done evil in so doing. So this was a typical practice in the ancient world uh, among pagan countries to practice divination. The Hebrew word here is the word nachash. It's interesting, when I first saw that word, I I kind of scratched my head. It's only a slight vowel point difference between um, this word for divination and the word for servant. I don't know that that has any uh, real significance, but you have, looks like this in the Hebrew, nachash. See, you you have a short vowel point here and a uh, or long vowel point here, short vowel point here, and the difference between this word and the word for serpent is just that little mark right there. Just just this little 
what the difference between a straight line and what looks to you like a T. That's, that's the only difference between divination and serpent. And, of course, remember the vowel points weren't there in the original. So I just thought that was interesting because when I saw that word, you immediately think of serpent. Serpent is Satan, and divination is... That almost sounds like rabbinical, mystical interpretation there. But uh, the connection is there. Divination is part of demonism. And it is forbidden in the scriptures in Leviticus 19.26 and Deuteronomy 18.10. It is forbidden for the king to use divination. This was just one of many ways of uh, trying to discern what the future would be. And God does not want us to know what the future is other than what he has revealed to us because we are to trust in him and not trust in trying to uh, figure out how things are going to be tomorrow or the next day. And all forms of, of divination, astrology, uh, tarot cards, all of these other ways of trying to foretell the future, predict the future, are all prohibited in Scripture as aspects of demonism. Now, that doesn't mean that every time you read the uh, astrology column in the Houston Chronicle or that you uh, are somewhere around and somebody's casting lots to see what's going to happen or whatever the uh, different methodologies are for telling the future, that there are demons involved. But there may be, and it opens people up to a mentality that is the mentality of the demonic. It is a rejection of God. So it is completely prohibited by God for believers to be involved in these kinds of practices. Now, this was the kind of thing that was standard operating procedure for any ruler in the ancient world. And so Joseph would have the various accoutrements that would pertain to whatever uh, the fun- the, his office was. And so he had something like this, but this doesn't mean that he actually used it. For, in, in this particular case, we know why he knows the cup was there, and we know how he knew what was going on because he had set it up. And in verse 15 of chapter 44, we read, And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? He is not saying that that's what he did. He is simply playing a role in order to uh, set them up for this entrapment to see if they actually are going to stand in Benjamin's place and protect him. So I just wanted to go back and pick up that one item from chapter 44. We stopped last time at the end of chapter uh, 44 as we have this rather long uh, speech by Judah beginning in verse 18 and going down through uh, verse 34 where he pleads with Joseph to protect Benjamin. And we see the change in his attitude that his focus is not on himself. He's willing to uh, take Benjamin's place and become uh, enslaved uh, by Joseph instead of uh, Benjamin in order to protect him. And his motivation is pr- to protect their father. Fourteen times in that speech he uses the word father, showing that that's the emphasis of his thinking, that, that this is going to destroy our father, to lose another son. We must protect him. Don't take our father's son away from him. And so this is his plea, and it is so heartfelt. And it is so moving to Joseph 
that Joseph just breaks down in front of them. And this is where we find uh, ourselves in chapter 45. And it is at this point that Joseph finally uh, identifies himself to his brothers, and he is going to interpret for his brothers the events that have taken place ever since they sold him into slavery. And it is in this that we begin to see played out in the Old Testament uh, history and narrative the reality of Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good. It's a fabulous principle that we're going to take a little time to look at as we wrap up this evening. But in verse 1 we read, Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood before him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out for me. Now he was in an audience chamber. He had his brothers in front of him, but he also had all of his stewards as well as uh, soldiers who would be there to protect them, uh, law enforcement officials, whatever their title was, but he wants everybody out so that he will be in privacy with his brothers. Remember, he he is Jewish. He's a Semite. He is uh, hated by the, I mean, he is looked down, he would be looked down upon by the Egyptians if he acted as a Semite. The Egyptians had a tremendous bias and racial prejudice against the Semites, which would include uh, any number of people groups in the uh, ancient world. Remember, the Jews themselves at this time only number, uh, as we'll see in the next chapter, only number about 70 people. But there is this racial prejudice against uh, against Semites for various reasons, and Joseph is t- has taken on all of the culture of the Egyptians. He shaves his head, he shaves his beard, he takes he he bathes uh, as the kind of clothes he uses. All of these things set him apart. So he doesn't want to offend. For one thing, he doesn't want to offend all of the all of his Egyptian servants. And on the other hand, he doesn't want anyone else there because of what I think he does. He has not. He looks so totally different. The brothers do not expect Joseph at all. They think he is dead. The last thing in the world they're going to believe is that he is truly Joseph. And I think that he does something very, very private here in order to reveal himself to them. Uh, we read in verse 1, So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Now, how did he make himself known to his brothers? There's more going on here than simply saying, Hey guys, it's me, Joseph. Yeah, right, sure. Joseph is dead. What are you going to do? This guy's going to kill us. Now, Joseph, what's the, what's the, what is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. Joseph is going to reveal himself as circumcised to his brothers, which is not a practice that the, the Egyptians would have followed. So when he is, he is authenticating his claim. I am a son of the covenant. And so he's going to reveal himself to them, and it's an extremely emotional scene. He weeps aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard of word spreads that these men have been brought back, and whatever's going on in there, Joseph has isolated himself with them, and we can hear him weeping outside of his palace. What is going on? And you know how gossip is in in any kind of uh, environment like that, government environment, what's going on? Everybody's asking questions. And so the the word spread all throughout uh, his servants in the house of Pharaoh. 
And then verse 3, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? Notice his emphasis here is on Jacob. Does he still live? Is he still doing well? And he says, But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And they were, they're scared to death. That's what the Hebrew word conveys. They're, they're, they're not just in a state of confusion, but they are terrified now because the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, and remember in Egyptian culture, the Pharaoh was the incarnation of the God. And so Pharaoh, uh, Joseph is his number two man. There is nobody on earth more powerful in all the world at this time in history than the Pharaoh of Egypt. And the number two guy is Joseph. He can do to them anything he wants, and nobody is going to challenge him. And they are suddenly remembering all of their hatred, all the things they said to him, all the things they did to him when they put him in the pit and selling him into slavery. And now they're, they're just, they're, their guilt overwhelms them, and they are convinced that, that he is going to kill them. So they're just scared to death. And then Joseph explains, and he says, very calmly, he says, Please now come near to me. They come near, and he says, I'm Joseph, your brother. And here's where he begins to interpret for them what has happened. Later on, he says it so cogently when he says, God, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But this is the first. It takes him a while to get this principle across to them that he has truly forgiven them. He says, I'm Joseph, your brother, who you sold into Egypt, but now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. In other words, stop all the emotion, stop the guilt, Stop beating up on yourself. Stop all the self-flagellation. That's not going to change anything or affect anything. Let's look at the situation now from divine viewpoint. And see, that's where we get many times in our life when we make bad decisions and they come back to haunt us three months, six months, a year later, and we begin to beat up on ourselves. Why did I make that stupid decision? Or sometimes we get in situations where... We're trying to make what we know is going to be a crucial decision, and we evaluate all of the evidence. We do a a masterful job of going through the decision-making process, and then we make the decision, and we move across the country. We sell our house, get a new house, take that new job, and we go to the new job, and three months after we get there, the company that has hired us and has made all these promises goes bankrupt. And we lose our job, and now we're away from friends, we're away from family. We thought we were making the right decision. And now we go through a period of unemployment, we go through a period of testing, and we beat up ourselves. Why did I make that stupid decision? It looked like the right decision, but that was a dumb decision. And then your wife comes along and says, that was really a stupid decision. You know, you got Job's wife. And she starts getting on your case because, you know, we really shouldn't have sold everything. Everybody's back in Texas. We need to go home. Well, maybe God has another plan, and it's just not the plan we thought it was going to be. And so and this is what Joseph is explaining to him. He says, don't beat up on yourselves anymore. Let's get past all the, all the emotion. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God is still in control. No matter what you do, despite the fact that you have a sin nature 
and your motives were wrong and your actions were wrong and you were out of the plan of God in terms of being disobedient to his revealed will, yet you can't get outside of the sovereign plan of God. Remember when we talked about the will of God in the past, I've talked about two different types of the will of God that Scripture talks about. One is the revealed will of God. This is the all of the prohibitions and the positive mandates in Scripture for the believer. That's the revealed will of God. Then you have the sovereign will of God. The sovereign will of God includes sinful actions because God is going to use everything to bring about his purposes, both sin and good. Is, and all of this is God's going to work together for good. And that's the principle that Joseph is focusing on here. They violated the revealed will of God, and God certainly disciplined all of them as he did Judah. We're only told about how he disciplined Judah, but they all would have gone through divine discipline. But God had a sovereign will that they could not escape, and that was that he turned their bad decisions into that which was good. And in verse 6, Joseph says, For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So we know that he was in Potiphar's house for about ten years. He was in prison for two to three years. So that would be around 13 years. Then the first seven-year cycle has gone by, so that's up to about 20 years. And now we have a two years into the good cycle, I mean two years into the famine cycle. And so Joseph is now probably around 40, 41, 42 years of age. And in verse 7 he says, And God sent me before you. Notice the... The terminology here, God is the subject of the active voice verb. They were the ones who made the decision to throw Joseph in the pit and to sell him into slavery and to send him to Egypt. But he recognizes that they're not operating out from under God's sovereign control. It doesn't mean God's making those decisions for them. This isn't some sort of fatalism. They could have made good decisions, and God still would have worked to take Joseph into Egypt. But even though they made sinful decisions, even though they made sinful decisions, nevertheless, uh, God worked it out to bring about his purposes. So in verse 8, so now it was not you who sent me here. Notice he's not blaming them at all. It was not you who sent me here because God could have intervened and protected Joseph in the land and kept him from being taken out of the land. He recognized that God was working in that. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh. Now this is, uh, somebody asked me this right before class, does this mean that Pharaoh was young? No, this is an idiom. A father is a protector. And so that's how God has allowed Joseph to function as a protector to the Pharaoh by giving him the revelation regarding the uh, seven years of prosperity and the seven years of famine so that Joseph in his wisdom could come in and provide uh, protection through his wise plan of operation. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house, 
and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Then he shifts gears in verse 9. Now his focus goes back to the, to, to the father. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. So in verses 9 through 12, he is going to give instructions to them to go back and to get uh, Jacob and to bring him and the rest of the family to come to Goshen to dwell there where Joseph can protect them and God will nurture the nation. And over the next uh, 400 years, they will be uh, in a position of protection where they expand from these 70 people who come with, uh, with Jacob to a nation of about two and a half to three million. Now, I'm not going to take the time to work that out, but it, many scholars have done that and it works. If you have a rather low infant mortality and low death rate with people living 120 to 150 years. Remember, Moses lived to be 120. With people living that long, you would have six or seven generations living coterminously at that time. Right now, we can have as much as four. People people live to about 90. If people live to be 120, you'd have about five generations living coterminously. So the population would, would grow. And when they enter the land and they take that first census in Numbers chapter, I think it's in Numbers 1, they have over 650,000 fighting men. Well, if you have one over the age of 20, so if you have one woman and one child for every adult male, then you have about 1.8 million. And they probably had a lot more children than that. So they, it's, it's just a miraculous exponential growth as God fulfills his promise to Abraham that his descendants will be like the stars of the sky and the sands on the seashore. So in verse 8 we read, So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he gives instructions to go back. And he says in verse 10, You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. Well, let's go down here to, I have a map here. I think this is the map. No, that's not the map. There we go. That didn't work at all, did it? There. There. Okay, here's our map. Isaac is back here living up near the Philistines, uh, near Gerar. And he's going to leave Gerar and he will go to Beersheba and then head across the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt. And it's this land up here in the Nile Delta area that is the area that is referred to as the land of Goshen. Later on, it's going to be referred to as the area of Ramses, and this is an anachronism. It was called that much later, but uh, when they were copying the scriptures, they applied a later name because nobody referred to it by whatever the, or still knew of it, by its earlier name. That's like um, in New York. If you were talking about New York prior to about, I mean, the early 1700s or late 1600s, it was New Amsterdam. It was a Dutch colony. But 
you might talk about New York, New York City, in the 1600s, and that would be, in one sense, historically incorrect because at that time it wasn't referred to as New York City. But if you were talking about New Amsterdam, most people wouldn't know what you were talking about. So you would, people might still refer to it anachronistically as New York City so that people would know uh, what you were talking about, even though technically it didn't receive that name until after the British had uh, uh, taken it from the Dutch. Okay, back to verse 10. They'll dwell in the land of Goshen. You'll be near to me, you, your children, your children's children. So he's going to provide protection for them. And he continues to discuss this down through uh, verse 13, telling them to go back to their father. And then we have the reconciliation scene in verses 14 and 15. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Now, that must have been a wonderful conversation to listen to, just to be on a, the fly on the wall and find out what did they talk about? What were all the things they talked about? How did he get there? All, all the things. It would just been a tremendous conversation. He's catching up on all the things that had happened to them and their families and all that, and they spent that time together. Now, in verse 16, we find out what's going on outside the room. The report was heard in Pharaoh's house, and Pharaoh gets word that Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants as well, and Pharaoh is going to do what he can in his gratitude to Joseph to take care of his family. So he is going to provide animals and chariots to go back to uh, the land of Canaan in order to retrieve Jacob and the rest of the family and all of their goods. So verses uh, 17 down through 20 describe Pharaoh's provision. So this is just another way in which God provides for the protection of the descendants of Abraham. So they took carts. This was a early chariot. They had chariots at this time. It was a two-spoke wheel. And they took these carts or these early chariots out of Egypt to uh, back to the land of Canaan in order to retrieve all the relatives. Verse 21, Then the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them carts, according to the command of Pharaoh, gave them provision for the journey. Notice the extent of the version, the, 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 the provision. He gives them he gives them garments. He gives them uh, 300 pieces of silver, five changes of clothes. He sends back donkeys loaded with all of the good things of Egypt. This is tremendous provision. This probably took quite a while to gather everybody together and move back. It's a time of famine. So he's giving them enough provisions to get them home, to get everybody together, because when they, when they get all of the their wives and their children, their grandchildren together, they're going to have a group of about 70 people to move across the uh, desert and the wilderness back to Egypt. So God provides logistically everything that is needed in an abundant manner because God's grace is always in abundance. In verse 24 through 28, he sends the brothers back and they come to Jacob and they stun him in verse 26 with the news that Joseph is still alive. Not only is he still alive, but he is, he's the man. Remember last time they always referred to him as the man. He is the man. He is the 
uh, governor of all of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still. He doesn't believe them. This, this, this is incredible. He can't factor this news. And so they told him every detail, everything that Joseph had said, everything that Joseph had done. And it's only when he saw the carts, when he saw all of this provision that was sent, that he knew it must be true. Because the, the Pharaoh would never send all of these gifts to him otherwise. There must be something special. So all of the gifts that are sent to him validated their uh, statement that it was that it was Joseph. And we're told at the end of verse 27, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. He must have been walking on air. Uh, he, he probably expected that when they came back, they would have lost Benjamin. He's probably been in a state of, of concern and worry and despair for a while. And now he recognizes Joseph is alive. And he says, I'll go to see him before I die, verse 28. Now, chapter 46 describes their movement from the land of Canaan to Egypt. And note the process. And we see the divine viewpoint orientation of Jacob. He is referred to again as Israel throughout this period. He's referred to as Israel, which highlights his positive spiritual uh, status at this time. And in verse 1 we read, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Remember, Beersheba was the place where Abraham had planted a tamarisk tree. and For many years, Abraham lived there and the patriarchs lived there. Isaac lived there for a while. And by this time he was... Uh, and then later Isaac moved up and lived outside of Gerar in the area which is now called the Gaza Strip. And this is the same area where uh, Jacob was living. But now he goes first to Beersheba, which is where uh, God had also confirmed the covenant to uh, Abraham. And he offers sacrifices there to the God of his father Isaac. And notice what happens. God speaks to him. Now let's pay attention for just a minute to what we're told in verse 2. God reveals his plans and his blessings to Jacob. He speaks in a vision. God is talking to him. Jacob isn't having some sort of impression that this is what God's going to do. He, he's not having some kind of warm feeling. There, there's not just some sort of liver quiver that, okay, now I know that God's going to take care of us. There is direct propositional revelation. Propositional revelation means that it is given in clear verbal statements. A proposition is a statement that can be, uh, can be affirmed or denied. It's either true or it's false. A question isn't a proposition. It's a question. A command isn't a proposition. It's a command. You can't, if I say go to the store, you can't say, well, that's true or false. It's a command. A propositional revelation means that it's given in, in propositions, in sentences, in verbal constructs that can be analyzed, understood, and reveal information and truth. And God calls upon Jacob in verse 2, in the visions of the night. So this is while he is sleeping. And they have a conversation. He calls upon Jacob and he says, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob says, here I am. This is the same response Abraham had 
Back in Genesis 12, the same response Abraham had in Genesis 22 when God called upon him to take his son Isaac to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him there. When God called, the response is, Lord, here I am. It implies I'm ready to do whatever you ask me to do. I am your obedient servant. Just speak and I will do it. So God speaks in verse 3, and he identifies himself, first of all, as the God of your father, not just any God. I am the God of your father, Isaac. And, of course, that would take him back to be the God of Abraham. Then he gives him a command. He says, don't fear to go down to Egypt. Don't be afraid to leave the land. This is the land I promised your father, Abraham. I reaffirm that promise to Isaac and I've reaffirmed this promise to you that this is the land that I will give you and your descendants forever, but don't be afraid to leave the land. Now, this is my will. He is, God is giving him direct uh, revelation. So when we talk about decision-making earlier, remember I divided into those two spheres. You have the one sphere that has to do with God's revealed will, and then you have the other sphere that has to do with God's sovereign will. It was God's sovereign will for Joseph to be taken out of the land and taken to Egypt to provide a haven for the descendants of of Jacob down through the next 400 years. But now we see God's revealed will where he is telling Jacob that this is what I want you to do. When you have God's revealed will, it is propositional. It's not liver quiver. It's not going up into your closet and praying and waiting for God to somehow stir you and so that, you know, pole A or pole B vibrates and now you know, well, I'm going to do this instead of that or that instead of this. Whenever you have God telling people what, their, what his will is in the Scripture, it is always clear. You don't have to guess at it. It is precise. So God has directive will here. He says, don't fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. So he is revealing to to Jacob not only what he should do, but what God is going to accomplish in the future. There's great comfort here because in a time of instability and change, Jacob needed to hear this voice from God. And God says, I will go down with you to Egypt. I'm not just this God of the mountains that 20th century liberals are going to say. I am a God who is omnipresent, and I will be with you wherever you go, and I'm going to go with you down to Egypt. Remember, I was with you when you went up to Haran when you were a young man, and you were looking for a wife, and I was with you during those 20 years that you were uh, being uh, abused by your relatives, by Laban and everyone else. And just as I was with you in Haran and stayed with you when you returned to the land, I'm going to be with you when you go out of the land and when you go to Egypt. So God says, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, just as surely you will return. And the promises that have been made to Abraham, to your father Isaac, the promises that this land will be given to you and your descendants forever will be fulfilled, but you won't live to see it. I will bring you up again. This also, this is also the basis for Jesus' very sophisticated argument with the uh, Sadducees for uh, resurrection. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in a physical bodily resurrection, and so there they ask 
Jesus about resurrection, and at one place he answers and says, when God said, I am the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is not uh, God is the God of the living and not the dead. So for God to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 300 years after they died physically means that they're still alive and there's a resurrection. And so this is the promise. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all promised that they would own the land. But none of them ever owned the land. The only piece of real estate they ever owned was the cave of Machpelah, which is where Sarah was buried and Abraham was buried. So God says, I will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you up again in the sense of your descendants. And Joseph, and we could probably, it's probably a but in the Hebrew, but Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. You won't see it. You will be dead before that return occurs. And then in verse 5, we see Jacob's response when we get down looking at verses 5 down through. Look at verse 5 down through 27, or 5 to 7, we see his response as they gather together and organize to leave. Jacob arose from Beersheba. They organize uh, all the families, the wives, the children, the grandchildren. They pack up all their goods, everything they have, their livestock, the cattle, the sheep, the goats, everything gets organized, and they begin to leave. And then in verses 8 down through 27, we have a a catalog of everyone who is leaving the land. Jacob, his 11 sons, even though Joseph's mentioned here, because what we get here is a, a, a list of everyone in the family. We have to pay a little bit of attention uh, to this because there's a, a bit of a conflict, as we'll see uh, in a couple of passages here. So as we go through this list, we see that uh, there are 33 descendants uh, through the sons that he had with Leah. There are 16 from the sons of Zilpah. Zilpah was Leah's handmaid. There were 14 through the two sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, and they're both listed here, even though the text recognizes that Joseph and his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, aren't in the land of Canaan. They're, uh, they're in Egypt. There are seven through Bilhah, who was Rachel's maid. And this comes, if we add all of these up, we have 70. Plus Dinah, the daughter, gives us 71. Now, if you notice in verse 12, there's a listing of all of Judah's sons, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But there's also the parenthetical note that Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. So we're going to have to subtract Er and Onan because they're already departed. Then we have to subtract Joseph and Manasseh and Ephraim because they're in Egypt. They're not with Joseph in the land of Canaan. So that means that we have 71 and we subtract 5 and that leaves 66. Now we take the 66 and we add in... um, uh, when they get to Egypt, you add in Joseph, Manasseh, uh, Ephraim, and Jacob himself. That's four. You're back up to 70. So that means when they, they, there's 66 that come down to the land, but when they're all there and you have this, this core group that will be the group from which all of the, the nation will derive, you have 70. So, but there's a conflict here because of, 
a statement made by Stephen in, let me back up to Acts 7.14. This is Stephen's speech to the uh, Pharisees just as they get ready to stone him in Acts 7. And in his speech, he says, Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. Now, this is a typical question people ask. Well, see, the Bible contradicts itself. There's 70 at the start of uh, Israel according to Genesis, but there's 75 according to Acts 7.14. So how do you solve it? See, the Bible can't get it right. Well, one of the most widely accepted solutions here is to recognize that the Hebrew text includes Jacob, Joseph, and Joseph's two sons as, as part of the 70. But when the Septuagint totaled it, when the rabbis translated the Septuagint, the Old Testament, into Greek, they omitted Jacob and Joseph, but they included Joseph's seven grandchildren that are mentioned in First Chronicles 7, 14, and 15, and in First Chronicles 7, 20, and 25. And that seems to be supported by the text here in Genesis 46, which lists 66 names omitting Jacob, Joseph, and Joseph's two sons from from the list. Uh, But another solution, the one that I prefer, is that the Septuagint 75, see that's uh, that's what Stephen is quoting here is the 75 that are listed in the Septuagint. But the, the Septuagint 75 included the 66 plus nine wives for those for nine of those sons, because Joseph's wife is is uh, back in Egypt, and Judah's and Simeon's wives have died. So that leaves only nine of them with wives that are still alive. So when you add the nine to 66, you get 75. That's how the Septuagint came up with that number 75, and Stephen is simply relying upon the King James Version of his day, which was the Septuagint. And the Septuagint counted up the numbers just a little differently, but we had the same group of people. It's not really a mistake. So then we come down to verse 28. Verse 28, we have the family coming to Goshen and settling there. And here we read, Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph. Notice the role of Judah continues to be one as a leader. He has uh, reformed his life. He's straightened things out. He's shown that he is a mature leader by the way he has uh, handled himself. He has shown genuine humility. He is no longer jealous and envious of those who are favored. And Judah is the one sent ahead to Joseph to point out the way to Goshen. So Joseph then is going to unite with his father, verse 29. He gets his chariot ready and all of his entourage, and he heads to Goshen to meet with his father, and there they meet in verse 30. And What a meeting that must have been. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. And Joseph then shows that he's still thinking. He may be emotional in this reunion, but he has thought out a plan because he wants to he, he wants to make sure that they are in a place of protection. So he tells his brothers that he's going to go to Pharaoh and remind the Pharaoh that they're they're all coming from Canaan and that they're shepherds. Egyptians didn't like shepherds. So they don't want to have the shepherds in their environment. So they want to make sure they're they're kept away from the 
main cities and put you know we'll just put them out on the farm somewhere where we don't have to see them or smell them or put up with them and so there's a rationale behind Joseph's emphasis here in verse 32 that the men are shepherds and so Pharaoh will when Pharaoh hears that they are shepherds he is going to say well let's put them off here into this delta area where there was a lot of water, and so there was a lot of forage for the livestock. It was a good place for them to go, but it was it was not in the everyday sight of the Egyptians. So Joseph is showing a lot of wisdom in this. And what happens here is that the Jews are placed here, and this becomes, as it were, a womb. And it is in that womb that the nation is going to grow until God is going to give birth to them as a nation, not as a people, but as a nation when he brings them out in the Exodus. So that takes us up through the end of chapter 46. Now what has been going on here is an illustration of the principle of Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good. That's the old King James translation, which is how I memorized it. And it places the all things as the subject of the verb, but that's really a poor translation. The all things, panta, is an accusative plural of the noun pas, which means all. And in the accusative plural, it is the object of the verb, not the subject of the verb. The verb is soon ergo, meaning to put together. So what the text actually says is we know that he works all things together for good. It doesn't say God there. God's not mentioned in the text. The theos is inserted in only a few insignificant manuscripts, but it's not in the majority of the text. So the best rendering is we know that God works, or that he works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So it, it focuses on the object of that to those who love God, but also to those who God has called according to his purpose. And that's further defined, those who are called or those who are, uh, who are foreknown and predestined. And verse 29 and 30 goes on to explain that. And that includes all believers. So God is working behind the scenes in his sovereign will in the life of all believers so that whatever happens, and this happens to us, it's happened to me, it's happened to you, where you are certain that something is what God wants you to do. And then all of a sudden, God, it seems like God pulls a rug out from under you, somebody stabs you in the back, something happens, whatever it is, it's not what you thought was going to happen. Or you're just going through life and all of a sudden somebody at work stabs you in the back and betrays you or uh, something else happens. You're just going through life and, and you get uh, uh, involved in some sort of accident or there's a major health problem and everything is turned upside down. You live in New Orleans and everything gets blown away and washed away. But God is still in control. And even though our life may not take the course that we thought it would, should, or what fit our dreams, God is still in control and he's going to bring about that which he has planned. And our job is to be resilient enough, there comes the test, resilient enough in order to realign ourselves with, with what God is obviously doing. And his sovereign will certainly includes 
and allows for and permits things to happen in our life that are that are wrong, and he allows people to do things to us that are certainly wrong, that are certainly evil, that may involve criminality, that may involve things that are intentional, but God is the one who allows it to bring about his purposes. So this then allows us to be like Joseph and to say, you may have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, and even though you sold me into slavery and you beat me up and you abused me and you did all of these other things to me, I can forgive you because I know that God had a plan in all of that and he was working out his purposes and it's not up to me to bring about vengeance or retribution or justice, but it's up to God. So I can just relax and treat you well because I know that the God... The, the God of all the earth who created all the earth, the judge of all the earth, is always going to do the right thing. So Joseph is able to be completely relaxed, forgive his brothers, and there, can, there is genuine reconciliation. Of course, their guilty conscience still bothers them, and it will be a while before they fully accept that reconciliation. Now, we'll get into chapter 47 next time. 47 and probably 48, as you can tell, we're nearing the end. Uh, things move fairly quickly in these chapters because they're just, uh, there's such narrative there. There's not a lot of heavy doctrine or theology in these chapters. But when we get to chapter 49, we'll definitely slow down when we get to uh, Jacob's prophecy related to his son. So we're close to the end after we started, I started this series in 2003, so it's only taken four years to go through these 50 chapters. I remember somebody telling me in a church years ago saying, you know, you should never spend more than six months in a book. I said, well, what about Genesis? See, there's a lot of shallow thinking out there. Just think of what all the wonderful things you miss if you just ran through this book in six months. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for all the great things we're learning here. The tremendous illustration we have in Joseph, of what forgiveness and reconciliation is all about, and the fact that you are a sovereign God who works all things together for good, that though there are many wrong things that happen, evil things that happen, criminal things that happen, terrible things that happen in our lives, we can relax and trust you, knowing that you are always on the throne, you are always in control, and even though life may appear to be out of control to us, it is not out of your control. So, Father, we pray that you'd help us to apply these things. In Christ's name, amen.